Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. morning. It's refreshing to have communion before the message. I really appreciated that because it's a reminder that um, we didn't bring ourselves to God because we repented. Um, we, we bring ourselves before God because he made a bridge for us through the death and the resurrection of his son. And if it weren't for what Jesus did, our repentance would just be sorrow and regret. It would mean nothing. Because of what he did, we can actually sit in front of God and have a relationship with him. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. I just want to say hi. So glad you're here. And I'm having a a period of time right now, a couple weeks, where God is just really showing himself to me everywhere in my life. I'm seeing him in my family. I'm seeing him in our staff, among our leaders, and among so many of you And that's just the stories I know about. But I'm just in this state of heart where I'm swelling with gratitude and pride for our church and for how much I see God at work. I know some of you, even if you're not coming here in the best shape, just your being here is a victory in Christ. It represents your fight to hang on to God when it's not easy. And I think he's very proud of you. I think he sees every small thing you're doing in secret to keep going. And he wants to honor that. He is honored by it. And I just feel like I need to say it because sometimes we preachers get up and we just beat up the church with thou shalts and thou shalt nots. And I'm just telling you, I think God is so pleased and he's moving through our church. And I know some of you will never hear the story, but you're fighting to hang on to God. And he's fighting to hang on to you. So be encouraged. Been working our way through a series on the Gospel of John. And we've arrived at John chapter 7. And the title of the message is Jesus the Anti-Celebrity. And I really wrestled with the tone of this message because I think it's something we need to reckon with today in our culture very much. I'm going to read from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Here's what the Word of God says. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. Hmm. There's just so much in there. (laughs) I got to keep this to under three hours, so let's just dive right in. You know, about eight years ago, I remember reading a story that Dwight Howard, at that time the center for the NBA's Orlando Magic, was baptized at his church, and that it was a faith that was genuine. And I, I remember reading that story and feeling really good about it. And don't worry, this is not leading to some story where, but then he proved that he was really a sinner. No, I mean, I think he's still walking with the Lord. I have no judgment over this man's faith. I just remember reading that story gave my heart a lift. And I, I puzzled over that. Like, I, beyond just, I was so grateful whenever I see somebody become a true brother or sister in Christ in a context that is not easy to become a born-again Christian. Surrounded by wealth, fame, attention, success, comfort, pleasure, 
every temptation known to man, to have the resources to do just about anything your imagination can come up with, that is not an easy context in which to come before a broken Savior as a broken human being and begin a relationship that starts with repentance and dependence. That is never an easy thing for any of us. But for someone in that context, I rejoice when someone against all odds becomes a born-again Christian out of that kind of world. So yes, I was happy over that, but it ran deeper than that, and I puzzled over that. Why am I in especially good mood that it's Dwight Howard? And I realized it's because somehow when someone that popular, that well-known, that cool, that tall, that rich, that handsome, he's got six-pack abs that show through a wet t-shirt. What on earth? When I see a dude like that, honor and bow before the same Jesus I worship, it somehow affirms my choice. It validates me. I'm like, yeah, boy, that guy is on my team now. And somehow that makes me feel better about being on my team. That's a weird thing if I think about it. And it has some real value. But I think that feeling is in a way sort of run away with our culture. And it's run away with the church. Maybe you've all been awake really late at night at a Denny's and you've done the same thing I've done with so many of my friends. You've mused. You play the game, ooh, imagine if he was a Christian or if she became born again. Back in the day, it was always Michael Jordan. There's always in every generation some figure that is almost universally well-regarded, popular, loved. You could be an athlete, but it doesn't matter what city you live in, what team you root for. Everyone loves this guy. Everyone loved Michael Jordan except the people from the city that they were playing against that week. That's it, you know. But I just remember thinking with my friends, can you imagine if MJ, his airness, became a follower of Jesus? And we all sat around and went, yeah, can you imagine? Maybe today it'd be a power couple like Jay-Z and Beyonce. Can you imagine? What if it's LeBron James? Who knows? Maybe Justin Bieber. I don't know. But, you know... We have this idea that if somebody with such fame and visibility, such a platform of influence, were to follow Jesus, it would have a ripple effect. The dominoes would fall, and thousands, perhaps millions of people who are currently disinterested might think twice about this Jesus they've disregarded. And there's a kind of logic in that, I think. Wouldn't you agree? That's, that's why the advertising industry pays billions of dollars every year to famous, good-looking people. Because somehow, if I drink that Coke, then everyone will want to drink that Coke. There's a logic in it, for sure. Those who have a platform have influence. And we reason that if they would use that platform and influence to point to Jesus, there would be a trickle-down spiritual economics And many would turn to Jesus. The interesting thing, however, is that history has borne out again and again that celebrity conversions don't have that effect that we think they will. In fact, what's interesting to me is in our culture today, when that celebrity finally outs themselves, they actually go down a notch in the world's eyes. Oh, you're one of them. We'll wait it out till you come back to our side. But for now you would think that that person with that platform would have an impact, but by and large, it has not the kind of impact we all imagine it would. And yet, even knowing that, even seeing that, it hasn't cured the American church from our enthrallment with celebrity. We still are just wowed by the idea that this impressive, beautiful, amazing person would honor Jesus, and that's going to change everybody's mind about it. That's why when somebody is good-looking and speaks well, we assume, oh, now people are going to come to Jesus. And when somebody is, is sort of um, milk-toast-looking and plain Jane, and they're not very eloquent, we're like, oh, nothing's going to happen today. Let's just check our email and act like we're listening. It shows how different our picture of reality is from the way Jesus approached it. And in this text, what we see is that Jesus had a really different mindset than the people around him when he came to celebrity. I want to make a couple uh, observations, just two, about this text 
and the startling, surprising attitude which Jesus reveals that runs exactly counter to what I see happening in the church across the world today. The first point, I just called it almost famous, right? Because they tried really hard to turn him into a celebrity, and Jesus simply was not having it. In verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. That short sentence summarizes six months of Jesus' life, right? That is one-sixth of his entire earthly ministry in that one little sentence right there. So what we've just finished looking at is the feeding of the 5,000. And after that, if you recall, it says in John 6, 15, that the people were so amazed and grateful for this miracle. They're like, this is our boy right here. We're going to make him our king, and he will take care of us. He will overthrow Rome. He will restore our nation to glory. So they latched onto him. They hoisted him on their shoulders, and they tried to make him their their hero by force, it says. And Jesus, I just picture him, he's like, put me down. No, 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 this is, it's not going to be like that. And they're like, don't, don't listen to him. Just let's lift him up because we, and it wasn't that they honored him or wanted to follow him. They wanted to use him as the perfect symbol, the perfect vehicle to mount up and ride to their own glory. It was the perfect moment for somebody who wanted to break out and become huge. I mean, it's the kind of moment where you're like, all four judges turned around on the voice? Me? And if you don't leverage that moment, you miss the window. It's that kind of moment. And what it says instead is Jesus jumped off of their shoulders, rejected what they were doing, and ran away from the crowds and hid in solitude. That's a really... Really weird reaction. Do you remember when Linsanity happened? A little, not little, he's 6'3", I have to look up like this, but you know. I, I met Jeremy Lin once, and he I shook his hand, and he was so ordinary. I'm like, you look like just a dude at our church. <laughs> he hunches over a lot, so, you know, he didn't seem like larger than life. And I'm thinking... This guy, when he finally broke out, everybody was like, now it's his moment, and he wrote it. He hasn't broken out and had an amazing career, but he has ridden that moment to multi-million dollar contracts. The team after team after team. He's no longer crashing on his teammates' couch, is he? And yet he's doing some really interesting things with it, but what I see is that's when people want to become great in this world, they use moments like that strategically. So I find it very interesting that Jesus, God in human form, with three short years to accomplish something. I mean, good Lord, I've been at this 23 years, and I feel like I'm just getting started, and we're only a fraction of the way there. He's three years to change everything. And yet he runs at the one moment when everybody wants to make him their hero. And instead, he spends the next six months in Galilee. That's like if you were an, a fashion student and some high-level fashion star, some designer said, I'm going to give you five minutes in my show. Let me see what you got. And you put out your clothes and you are written up in Vogue and Cosmo and everyone's like, forget the star, forget the designer. This new kid is unbelievable. And all of a sudden you're having this moment. Everyone wants you to design their next Academy Award dress. And you go, you know what? No, thank you. I'm going to hang out in Nebraska and try to make it big. And L.A. is calling, and London is calling, Paris is calling, New York is calling. You're like, nope, Omaha it is. And everyone's like, you don't really understand this industry. Sure, the people in Omaha are loving your clothes. I'm sorry if anyone in Omaha listening to this podcast, no disrespect to your city, but let's just admit together, you are not the epicenter of the fashion world. And there they are. He's, he, he's hanging out in Galilee, a relative backwater. There are some big cities there, but it's really not the place you hang out when you want to break out and hit the A-list. 
And he spends six months just going from town to town, village to village. In fact, the other gospel writers record that he made a trek of the entire region. He pretty much toured the whole place. He was casting out demons, performing miracles. He was feeding additional crowds, multitudes of thousands. But along the way, in those six months, what you see Jesus doing the most, where he spends almost all his time and energy, is pouring into the 12 disciples. It's weird that at a moment when the vast multitudes, 20,000 strong, want to make him their king, he flees from them into a backwater region, guaranteeing himself anonymity, and he pours himself for six months into 12 men who are really just average or slightly above average as human beings. If you were picking a dream team to change the world, you would not pick these 12 guys. John might argue, I would have been on that list anyway, but... John had a pretty good view of himself, healthy self-esteem. But I really think these are not the 12 guys I would have picked to change the world. And he spends six months just teaching them everything. He's unloading. He opens the storehouse and pours out everything. In fact, in these next six months, he would have some significant moments. For the first time, he would begin to tell them, I'm not here to start a movement of celebrity. I'm going to die. And then if you're paying attention, I'm not, don't, the news of my demise are, are quite exaggerated. I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to start a revolution and establish a kingdom. Are you paying attention to me, guys? And they kind of have heard him. But this is the period in which he told them the real mission, the real agenda for the first time. In fact, he took his three inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He brought them up to a mountain, and he introduced them in the flesh to two of the greatest heroes of Judaism. And the three of them hung out with God the Father, and everyone except the two, two, three disciples is just glowing with sunlight. So bright you can't even look at them. It's what's come to be known as the transfiguration. And Jesus was giving this kind of moment to his three innermost circle, his closest followers, during these six months. It's an incredibly active six months, but it was a a six-month period in which the primary beneficiaries were not vast multitudes, but 12 men upon whose shoulders he would entrust the establishment of the gospel and the spreading of that, that message and the building of his church throughout the world. That's a huge responsibility. And one would think, why give it to 12 average guys? Why not set a fire on the multitudes, set cities ablaze, start a movement, create a brand? Make a platform for yourself. See, we're obsessed with celebrity, so we don't understand the logic of Jesus' choice. But what he's trying to say is he's sending us a message. This is never going to be a movement that will be spread and carried by hype and momentum and a sense of action. Now, I'm not saying that, that momentum and movement and action are bad things per se. I mean, I hope you don't go to church and every, every Sunday you're like, that was totally dead, but I really did try to see God. I hope once in a while you come and you feel like something's happening in this room. That you look at one another and you see the way people are caught up in singing And worship and you say, you know, something was happening in that room today. I felt it. God was at work, not just in me, but in us. And that is important. And it is really important for our spiritual condition to be a part of that environment on a regular basis. But if that is what is carrying the day for you, I'm telling you, faith will not last. See, there is a limit to how far you could be carried by the waves other people are making. You know, sometimes we think, if I could just get to a more exciting church, and I'm not saying this because if you're thinking about leaving, shame on you, stay here in this dead place. I'm, I'm saying, listen, we think that all we have to do is change scenery, change environment, and it'll change me. And it will. It'll change you for like six weeks. And then it'll get old. Because we're just that way, everything gets old. Everything gets old. I remember buying my car and thinking, oh, this car. And in like six days, I'm like, oh, this car, it's good, I like it. But it just, everything so quickly loses that wonder. When I was a kid, it lasted longer. But I'm 51, I've seen things, I've owned things, I've experienced things, I've felt things, I've tasted things. There's very little left in the world that makes me go, oh. 
And then next day, still, whoa! It's just really so short-lived. It's like, yeah, that was great. I've been in stadiums with 20,000 people singing Amazing Grace a cappella, tears running down my face. I see Jesus' face floating in the air in front of all of us. I mean, just enraptured moments. And the very next day, just as numb as you want to be in my soul. It's, I can't explain it. And that's because sometimes I'm moved not by the God in the room, but by the other people in the room who see the God in the room. See, this is the danger of chasing the action, of going where things are happening and people are on the move and there's a positive atmosphere and all this stuff is, yes, that's important, but if that's what you're after, it cannot carry us. You know, I was listening to Moody just randomly this past Thursday and I heard J.D. Greer come on and he was preaching a message. I didn't know who it was at first. I'm not that familiar with him, but he tells a story that only a, a guy from the Bible Belt could tell. It's a great illustration. I think it captures what I'm trying to say here so well. He tells the story of a grandfather sitting on a porch on a lazy day, just hanging out with his grandson. And at their feet, under the porch, are ten hounds, just having a nap, being lazy. And all of a sudden, one of the hounds lifts up his head, lets out a yelp, and just takes off running into the field. The boy perks up. He's like, what's this? And all of a sudden, and Grandpa goes, just watch. About a minute later, the other nine dogs, they all perk up, and they just take off running after the first dog. About ten minutes passes, and those nine dogs come back looking completely sweaty, exhausted. I know dogs don't sweat, but you know what I'm saying. Their tongues are hanging out, and and they sit back down, and they just lay down and resume their napping again. About ten minutes after that, that first dog comes back. And he's got a rabbit in his mouth, a juicy rabbit. And the grandfather points to that. I couldn't believe I found a picture of nine hounds running. The internet is an amazing place. It's a magical place. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to find a picture of nine hounds running. There you are. So so he says, watch. And, And that one dog comes back with the rabbit. He goes, son, you know why only that one dog came back with the rabbit? And the other nine didn't. It's not that there's only one rabbit in that field, but you see, the other nine dogs were just excited. And they were chasing the first dog. They didn't even know why. They were just caught up in it, and they were just excited. But that excitement doesn't last for very long. And after a while, they're like, what the heck are we running after? And they came back because they preferred a nap to just mindless running about barking. But that first dog, he got the rabbit because he's the only one who saw a rabbit. He wasn't just running, he was chasing something. And because he saw the rabbit, he relentlessly pursued it until he caught it. That's the difference between hanging out with a bunch of people and getting excited because they're excited and seeing the one we're supposed to chase and be captivated by him. I share that because sometimes when we are feeling this way, or someone we love is feeling this way. Their hearts are growing cold and numb, and they're becoming apathetic and disinterested. And our first gut reaction is, I got to change. I have to change scenery. I got to get into a different place, a different group, another. And we think, if only they could just be around different kinds of people, hear a different kind of energy, a different kind of message, then everything would be better. Because that is how our minds work. We trust glitz and polish and performance and presentation and personality. And some of those things matter tremendously, but we trust them in a way that we should only trust the true presence of God. And instead of saying trade up to a better setting, we ought to say, hang on and look, because Jesus is here, even here. And the only way you're going to make it the long haul in this journey of faith is not to chase others who are excited, but to chase him. To see him, to realize there is a point to all of this rabid excitement. And you don't want to be that dog who after nine years in church goes, what were we so worked about? I don't understand what any of this is. Some of us have been there. We sat in a familiar building, in a familiar setting, in a church. We could do this in our sleep. And one day we woke up and go, why do I do this again? I can't remember. What, What am I here for? Oh, yeah, I remember. I thought I'd meet someone. I'm still alone. So why am I here? 
Oh yeah, I thought my marriage would improve, but it hasn't. So why am I? And you realize if you are here just hoping the hype and the momentum and the excitement of others will carry you, I'm here to tell you it simply cannot. The only way to go the distance in this faith journey is to see him. So the Jewish festival of tabernacles was approaching. That was like Thanksgiving and New Year's and Christmas all wrapped in one. I mean, this was the big one. This was when everybody went back home. And it was a big pilgrimage. People would journey from many miles away to be around family. They would build these temporary shelters. It was a remembrance of what life was like right after their ancestors left slavery in Egypt. And everything was temporary. Everything was uncertain. And still, God took care of them. And he was faithful. That's what they were remembering. It happened right around this time of year, between September and October-ish. And it was a time when it was like, you know, there was a lot of religious observances that were really heavy. A lot of killing of animals and pouring blood on the altar and all that. And it's just very heavy. This one was about celebrating God. It was about gratitude and joy. It was the most positive of the feasts. And everybody, it was a party atmosphere. And everyone had an open heart, an open mind. And his brothers, these are not his disciples. These are his half-brothers, the sons of Joseph and Mary, with whom he shared a little bit of genetics. And these brothers, in verse 5, makes it clear. They don't yet know who he is. They don't actually believe in him. But they're like, what is your problem? It's clear you got some special sauce, man. We saw you just take a little boy's lunch and feed 20,000 people. You're not a normal guy. And you're doing this in a backwater small market. You're playing Woodfield Mall. You should be playing Soldier Field. What are you doing? Why don't you get out there? And you know what, Jesus, I know you're a big brother and all, but you're not very smart at this. Can we be your agent, your manager? Right now, just a little ways down the road in the big city, the Feast of Tabernacles is happening. If ever there was a moment to step out on the big stage, this is it. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands will be flocking in and they will be ready and watching And if you could do this, what you just did here in this backwater town, if you could do that in Jerusalem, you will blow up. You'll go triple platinum. You'll be signing record deals and movie deals, and people will want to write your book. As if their motivations and logic were not clear enough, look how baldly honest these guys get. I love love that verses like this are in the Bible. It's like they're teaching them, no, this is how it works now. Pay attention. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. You're acting like an idiot. you got the greatest voice like that Warner Brothers frog. Hello, my baby. And you never sing in front of people. It's like my daughter Jordan, best singer in this whole church, I guarantee you. Sorry, Audrey. Sorry, Charlie. But Jordan's the best singer in this church. She will never sing in front of any of you. You will never hear her sing. Frustrating. Nobody who wants to make it big performs in secret. Shh, I'm going to do a magic trick for these ants over here. You're trying, if your goal is to be famous, you're trying to seek the biggest audience that will give you their attention. And so they said, since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Why are you limiting yourself? I've been there at a smaller stage. People have offered me a platform that I didn't feel feel like I earned. Book publishing deals, radio shows, the pastorate of large mega churches. I don't know why I'm being offered these things. But I've been in that place where people are saying, you're the guy now. Do it. Go for it. And I was surprised that when I shared these offers and invitations with the people closest to me, more than half said, duh, There was no, let's pray about it, let's fast about it. They're like, why would you even ask us this? It's career suicide not to go for it. What an interesting term, career suicide. Because if that's what ministry is for me as a career, I should kill it fast. It deserves to be put down. 
See, what his brothers were doing as unbelievers, they were trying to apply secular logic to spiritual action. They were saying, if this was the world, this is how you win. Surely those principles must hold in this realm as well. After all, Jesus, what's the point of your great message if no one's going to hear it? Let's get it out to as many people as possible. That kind of logic has fueled so much commercialization of our faith in this country. Have you ever wondered why the albums of all the Christian artists, the CD covers, are all like their glamour poses? Why do I care what you look like? It's all just sitting on a hay bale. Mm. Praise Jesus, but look at me. You know, it's, why do I need to know your face? What happened to the days? Remember even the secular, like, acid-snorting 70s hair metal bands? They would put weird art on their, like, symbolic stuff. You go, what does that mean? And you'd stare at it, trying to figure it out. Even those dudes, as flamingly pagan as you can imagine, try to use their album covers to communicate a message. Here we are, this industry, it's just, and just, look at me, I'm so good looking, and I'm singing for the Lord, everyone. Come on. Every, just walk down, and there are no Christian bookstores left, but just go down to Amazon. Look at all the covers. What do they show? It's just a head and shoulders shot. We, the idea is somehow if we create a brand, build a platform, package a message, then the evangelical industrial complex, a term first coined by Sky Jatani, and repeated by everyone and his brother lately. It's real. It's an industry. It's a business. And the same principles that hold in the business world we're attempting to apply to the spiritual work of Jesus and his gospel, and it is crashing and burning on a regular basis. It's not that there's no wisdom we could borrow from the world, but if you in some uncritical way think that the way we win out there is the way we will win in here, you will get it horrifically wrong. This is a very different kind of movement that Jesus is starting. And so he actively, he doesn't just say, no, I don't think so, guys. It doesn't feel right. It's too much. I'm a little shy. He doesn't say anything. He goes, no, that's not what this is about. I'm not going to let it become about that. It is not a movement fueled by hype and by spectacle and by personality and brand. It will never be that. It will be a movement built upon a broken body and shed blood and the reality that the works of the world are evil. And as you see me, and he said, I will step out one day on a stage. The whole world will see, but they will not see a polished speaker and they will not see a magician performing wonders and signs. They will see a broken, bleeding shredded body, hung on a cross, and they will remember that the way we follow God is not because he is so compelling and so clear and accomplishing so much, but because he reminds us that we are sinners and our sin has destroyed our lives. It has destroyed the lives of others. It is destroying our planet and our societies. And he is the only solution to that sickness. And without that, there is no movement. It must begin there. Not with a celebrity leader, but with a broken Savior who shed his blood and gave up his life so we could be saved. That's what this movement will always be fueled by. And if it doesn't start there, no amount of side entrance will get people to that place. The ends cannot justify the means if we are applying worldly market principles to a gospel driven by sacrifice and repentance and a personal, life-changing encounter with Jesus. And if something is real and there's a moment, don't always assume that the answer is to package it and scale it and brand it and distribute it as broadly as possible. Sometimes the greatest movements of God happen in anonymous corners, and that moment is powerful. And it can be reproduced. It will be. But it won't be done in a shallow, mass-market fashion. It will be done one life at a time because that's the way our Savior looks at the human race. He doesn't see large multitudes. He sees large gatherings of individuals he crafted in their mother's wombs whose stories he knows that he deeply loves and is desperately after.
I better get to the second point. <clears throat> Getting excited, preaching too hard here. Perfect timing. That's another interesting thing. The first thing we see is Jesus had a really different attitude about how to get the movement going. He had really different ideas than they did about fame and platform and celebrity, about the reach. I think Jesus' brothers, if they had been around in the Internet age, would have founded Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat, the three of them. (laughs) That's their logic. Get it out there. No publicity. There's no such thing as bad publicity. All exposure is good exposure. Jesus had very different ideas about that. But he also had really interesting ideas about timing. And timing is almost everything, isn't it? Guys, have you ever asked a girl at the wrong time if she would like to go out to dinner? Had you waited six weeks, you would have had a yes. But you rushed. Have you ever bought a stock too late or sold one too early? I'm looking at you, thousands of dollars of Apple stock, which I sold in protest many years ago, which would be worth a massive amount of money today. Timing is everything in life. You do things a little too early or a little too late, and you're left in the realm of repair work, brute forcing it, problem solving. But you get the timing right, and it feels like The waves are just carrying you along. Timing is everything. The whole reason Jesus rejects what they're saying is not just because they have a skewed view of celebrity, but because they don't understand that his life is on a tight timetable and it's not his own. See, his life was different than our lives. He was here on an incredibly important mission from God, like the Blues Brothers, He was on a mission from God. His life wasn't just trying to maximize an experience or build a career. He had an important work to do that would have infinite, eternal consequences for all the rest of humanity and history. And as a result of that mission, his whole life, every decision, every movement was keyed to God's divine timetable. He was not free to simply read the signs and go where it made the most sense God was ordering his steps in a very real way. It mattered that he didn't just move, he moved when God said to move, because so often God defies our logic and our common sense. I am amazed looking back over my life, how many times God worked precisely when I thought it's over. It'll never work, and God goes, you don't know anything about timing. Watch this, and he'll show me that when I thought we missed the boat, we had it just right. And, you know, when I think it's too early, God goes, it's never too early. And let me show you, God is so often different in his sense of timing than we are. Jesus had a mission of infinite importance. And look at this. Catch this. Remember in verse 1, it said he did not want to go to Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. It's the region where Jerusalem is. Maybe you call it like a county or a territory. He goes, I don't want to go to Judea because I just ticked off all the Jewish leaders and they openly said, we're going to find a way to kill you. I mean, those, they were living in times when a, a bad religious idea could get you killed. Okay, I mean, that's, that's the kind of world. That, they're like, oh, we're going to put you down. You don't just get to say stuff like, my father is God. Uh-uh. You need to die. And so Jesus was like, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem because if I go there, they're going to catch me and they're going to try to kill me. And it wasn't like Jesus going, I don't want to die. He was, he shows later, it's not death that kept him away. But he said, that's my climactic moment. You dummies think that my climax is when I perform this miracle in front of millions. But my climax is going to be dying. And if I go now, these foolish guys will catch me and kill me and it's not yet time. Timing is everything. I'm going to die, but I'm going to die when and where and how God says, not because a bunch of bigots are going to put me to death. It wasn't self-preservation, you see, but that he was so tightly keyed and anchored to the timetable of God the Father that in every move he made, his first question is, Daddy, is it now? Daddy, is it now? There's this beautiful patience displayed 
in the life of Jesus. It's, it's just a marvel to think about. What's interesting to me is he comes on the scene in, at the age of 30. The Gospel of Mark is probably the most efficient. I feel like if my wife Jeannie wrote one of the Gospels, it would be Mark. Because he doesn't do the, all the preamble, how many begats and who's... He doesn't care who your grand-grand-grand-grand-grandpappy was. And all he says is, he just started working. <laughs> Bam! Day one of ministry is where Mark dives in. And what's so amazing to me is we have so much record of ages 30 to 33 and almost no record of 0 to 30. Yes, there's a lot of stuff written about his birth and pre-birth and the events surrounding his first year of life. But then crickets all the way till he's a full-grown man ready to pop out at 30 and get something done. I think what a weird way for God to have done it. There is one story, do you remember, that's recorded from his childhood. Only one. And I just, that just makes me nuts because I, how come there, there isn't a, a book in the New Testament called Childhood? Just tell us what kind of teenager he was. It will give some of us parents a little hope. Just help us to know. But you know what? Here's the one story from when he was 12. His parents, his whole family journeyed to Jerusalem to, to worship in the temple. And as they're going home, Mary goes, hey, honey, where's Jesus? And Joseph goes, what? I thought he was with you. You know, this conversation that every parents have had, right? And like, and you know what happened next? Mom looks at Mary, looks at Joseph and goes, what? And right away, you know, it's all Joseph's fault. I mean, let's just face it. That's the reality of life. Don't fight it. It's all Joseph's fault. Okay? And so, of course, they start looking around, asking no one in their caravan knows. So they go back and they search Jerusalem. Can you imagine the fear in their hearts? Three days they're looking for him. Finally, they're like, maybe he's at church. So they go to the temple, and there he is lounging around with all the wisest teachers in Jerusalem. And they're listening to, hanging on his every word. It's like, oh, my opinion of Isaiah 52 is maybe... And they're like, what? And you know how that encounter would have went. Jesus, what were you thinking? Are you crazy? So if your kids have ever walked off in the shopping mall, don't get so mad. Jesus did it too. Okay? (laughs) Jesus did it too. And if you've ever felt like, oh, we missed. Joseph and Mary lost their kid for three days in another city. They left town without him. So just feel better. Okay? Feel better about your parental imperfections. But what's so interesting, and to bring up the whole story, is because in Luke 2.52, at the end of it, this is the last statement about his childhood. And it just simply says, he grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and all the people. So from age 12 to the age of 30, for 18 years, the entire work and focus of his earthly life was growing up. He spent 18 years just solidly devoted to growing. He grew physically strong and healthy. He grew spiritually in stature and wisdom. He studied the word of God. And he learned how not only to be right with God, but how to get along with people, how to understand the human heart and human psyche. He grew up. He became a human being. And then he got a platform. How I wish young church leaders today would take a page out of Jesus' book, I see so many young guys in their skinny jeans and cool shirts and rock star hair going, I'm going to get a platform. And I'm like, please, would you spend about 10 years growing up first before you try to get out there and brand yourself and build a platform and get a message? Have something to say. When I was offered a three-book publishing deal, I was like, wow, flattered. And then I was terrified. I got nothing to fill three books with yet. I was 40 years old. What am I going to write? If, I, if you forced me, I could have come up with some drivel and people would have bought it, I think. But is that really how I want to get published for the first time? If someone told me to write a book, I'm like, and I just squatted and a book came out of me. I'm like, there you go, world. Here's the book that I squatted out for you. I didn't want it. And, so I'm th- and here's what I felt the Lord saying to me. Why don't you live a life? See my kingdom, behold my glory, grow up, have something to say, and then I will give you a platform to say it. But for now, your voice is not meant for the radio, it's not meant for the bookstore, it's meant for your church. It's meant for your family, your congregation. That's who it's for. And I received that. And I went to talk to my mentor, and my mentor was like, yep, you heard right. Don't you go write in those stupid books. It's not your time to be on a radio Preach to your church. Grow up. Grow in wisdom 
and stature and in favor with God and with men. The patience that Jesus exercised to be on the earth for 30 years. Is there anyone under 30? Oh my gosh. Okay, so we have one. Thank you. We have one in the room. (laughs) But you know, if, if you're around that age, can you imagine if everything in your life was just anonymous and this was the moment, finally, where you do something with your life? The patience and the interesting way that God looks at time should be a lesson to us. There were so many moments, so many opportunities for Jesus to take a shortcut, put the paddles on the world, and just shock his fame and his ministry into high gear. And he never took any of them. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he always asked his father. And when his father said, okay, now, now, go. It's like that moment when you get a star athlete who's chomping at the bit. He wants to drive, but he's like, no, you want to eat up some clock. So he's watching the coach dribbling, crossing over, doing all this, and he keeps looking over, and finally the coach goes, release the hounds. (laughs) Unleash hell, and the kid just takes off. He drives to the hoop, and with .1 second left, puts in the layup, wins the game. It's that moment where the timing was everything, and the player had his own ideas, Coach, trust me, I could score twice in the time that's left. Don't you even think about it. You watch me. I'll tell you when to go. And if you listen to the coach, you win the game. I wonder for us, even though this is primarily a story about how distinct Jesus' life was from our life, and I don't want to overshadow that, there's a great lesson for us. How do you decide the life-defining decisions of your life? Do you strike while the iron's hot? Do you leverage the moments the life presents you? Do you jump into the opportunities that land in your lap? Do you get while the getting's good? Do you crawl through every open window before it closes? I get why we would live like that. I really do. Because logic and, and reason are gifts from God and we should use them. But I long for the day in our church when I hear more often not, well, this makes sense or this will turn out well, but the Lord led us. The Lord said to me, the Spirit of God compelled me. It's good to figure out life and to use reason and logic. But the way our lives are ordered should be ordered the way our Savior ordered his life. He listened to the Father, and the Father told him when and when not. It's a hint of rebuke in what Jesus says to his brothers. My time's not here. For you guys, any time will do because you're not mindful of God's timetable. You live your lives on your own wisdom. Oh, I think it's time to go. I think it's time to stay. I think it makes more sense. And they just do what makes sense. They do what will produce the best outcome according to their limited minds. And if we're honest about it, I think we're more often like Jesus' brothers than like Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, think about the hundreds of Starbucks conversations I've had with people who are contemplating a life-altering decision. And I hear every argument, every pro, every con, the most thorough analysis. And in all that time, it's so rare for me to hear. And we really sat in fasting and listening, and the Lord led us here. It's not that I don't think they're praying. It's not like I'm doubting and skeptical about their faith. I'm just saying, I wish I would hear more often. The Lord is leading us, not our own minds. Please don't hear that as shut your logic off and look for supernatural signs. But I'm saying somewhere along the way, we need to learn how to time our lives by the timetable of God the Father. And not just by what will produce the best outcome or the best results. In the end, I'll end with this. Praise team, you can start making your way up. In the end of the day, Jesus does go. So you're like, Jesus is a liar. He said he's not going. Well, he didn't go with them. 
And here's really what he's saying. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, but I'm not going to go because of the reasons you've given or the timetable you've set forth because I reject your view of my life and my ministry. What he's saying as he, a few days after his brothers and his entourage head up, he follows them and in secret, in anonymity, he slinks around the feast just observing and watching. And then by day three, he begins teaching in the synagogue because he can't help himself. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to do things for sure, but I'm going to do them God's way. I'm going to do them in God's time. And I get a sense that that's an important word for some people right now in this church, in this room right now. That you're contemplating something and you know in your heart of hearts that that thing you're contemplating is going to have massive implications for your life. I don't have a horse in that race. I don't want to manipulate the outcomes in your life. That's not my job. It's not even my desire. But I feel like the Lord wants to say to you, if that's where you are, don't just do what makes the most sense. Commit yourself to doing everything God's way and in God's time. How else will you end up where you're supposed to go when you're supposed to get there? How else? So that I'm going to invite us just to say a prayer before God. Take a minute in the quiet of me not talking. Let the Lord begin to talk truly person to person to you. Let's just give him a minute of silent listening to see what he wants to say to us. And then we'll sing a last song. We'll close our worship. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.